0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of calvary chapel of mercer county enjoy the message we're going to jump right in because we got a bunch to do as i mentioned last week we looked we started looking at chapter uh 21 and there what we saw is that jesus had culminated a about a three maybe four week trek from northern galilee down to Uh, or heading toward the city of Jerusalem, and all along the way opportunities for ministry uh, came about for him. But then he finally made his way to Jerusalem, and just prior to entering in, we saw last week that rather than going by his normal standard, just sort of under the radar kind of a thing, that rather instead he goes in riding in on a donkey. And I pointed out last week to you that that was an unmistakable fulfillment of prophecy, that everyone there in that day, we may not understand it, we may not realize it, some guy coming in on a donkey, it may not mean much to us, but for the Jews of that day, they knew what it was that Jesus was communicating, and even Matthew points out that it is a fulfillment of Zechariah. So, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah nine, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, because your King, your Messiah, is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so there was no, no uh, misunderstanding the statement that Jesus was making. Now, of course, anybody could hop up on a donkey and ride into a city. That doesn't make a person the Messiah. And I suspect other people sat on donkeys and rode donkeys and things like that. But when you couple that with all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did and the myriad of other prophecies that he fulfilled, then it certainly made him a viable option. And Jesus was testifying to that truth. People again and again would say, and we, we read it in our Gospels here, again, and they would say, could this be the Messiah? Well, now that he's coming right in on the, on the donkey, they're saying he's claiming to be the Messiah. Again, it was unmistakable who he was trying to, uh, that is t- his design and his intentions by coming up on this donkey. He was the one generations had been looking for. Now, that is kind of the context of where we go today. Now, if we pick up, as Matthew does, in verse 12, with the encounter of Jesus entering into the city, and it says there, look at verse 12, 21, 12 Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers uh, and so on. If we kind of read just through Matthew, it looks as if he comes into the city riding on this donkey in this triumphal entry. And then he goes right to the temple and he begins throwing tables and, and doing all these sorts of things. The reality is, as you look at the other gospels, what we discover is that Jesus came to the city did whatever it is that he did there, went home for the evening, back to Bethany, his hotel, so to speak, where he was staying, and that the next day he comes to the city and does these things in the temple. So it's not one that comes right after the other. Mark 11 and Luke 19 point out that it's the next. It doesn't say the next day. It says now in the morning. Now, it could be the next morning. It could be two mornings later, whatever it may be. But it's happening uh, after the fact. Does that make sense? All right, fantastic. We are in the Passover week. Sunday uh, was the triumphal entry. And here it seems that this is on Monday morning that he's going into the temple and doing what he's doing. He will continue to go back to that temple each day until he is eventually arrested and crucified. And every time he goes back to the temple, he will sit there and he will teach the disciples or anyone that wants to come and sit and listen to him. But before he's going to do that, he has to deal with the corruption that is going on in the temple. And that's why we have this particular event occurring as it is. So let's read it. Verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. We've talked about this, but oftentimes when we think of the temple, we might think of like a church building somewhere. And, you know, a church building that's set up on a hill somewhere, people go into the building and they sit and they listen or they participate uh, in one way or another. But the temple was very different. So there was a building and there was a structure where the temple was, but the vast majority of the action, so to speak, took, out, took place outside of the structure. Only the priests and the high priests were allowed to go into the building. But the worshipers, they would come outside of the building and in the courtyard area, things like that would go on. Now in the times of Jesus, initially when the temple was built, way back with King Solomon, it was just the building was put at the top of a high mountain in Jerusalem there. But during the time of Jesus and the years leading up to the time of Jesus, the Herod decided, the king of, uh, of the area, decided that he would expand it. He would make it more uh, regal. It would be a much more, the whole world would want to come and see. And so what he did was he took this mountain and he leveled the mountain. It's the same that we have now. They call it the Temple Mount area. And he took an area, a building which was roughly 100 feet by 30 feet 45 feet high 100 feet by 30 feet 45 feet high and he extended it out something like 37 acres in size and so the Temple Mount area is huge they say you can fit 20 football fields up in that area now the Temple Mount is today under the control of the Muslims I wouldn't suggest you go play football up there they may not like that Uh, but we do go up on top of the Temple Mount and it, it is quite an experience when we go up there but it is it's a great expanse And so, in Jesus' day, today, there's a large building in the center. It's the Dome of the Rock. There's another mosque that is over here on the side. The Dome of the Rock is more, like, historical. You just kind of go and look at it. You don't go in it. Certainly, as a non-Muslim, you don't go in it at all. Uh, But nothing really takes place in there. There's a a, uh, mosque over here on the side where people worship, Uh, And most of it's underground, actually. And then there's just a couple of little structures here and there up there as well. If you're going with us to Israel, we'll spend time uh, up there. But in Jesus' day, the area was much more decked out. And so there were these porticos or these porches that had covered um, almost like pergolas that were there. And the rabbis would come and they would sit under those and they would just kind of find an area and say, guys, come on over here, we'll sit here today. And they would sit and they would teach their disciples. So when it talks about Jesus teaching his disciples on the at the temple, that's where he is. He's not in the structure. He's off on the side a little bit. Also off on the side a little bit were, as we'll see here, a flea market of sorts. Because at the temple, the worship that was taking place would take place, as I said, outside of the building. And that's where the various sacrifices would take place. And those sacrifices could be of animals or birds or whatever it may be, depending on what sacrifice that you were bringing. And so they had a little flea market off on the side where you could buy some doves or pigeons. You could buy a lamb. You could buy whatever animal it is that you wanted to sacrifice there in these flea markets. Again, look at verses 12 and 13. It references them when it speaks of the tables and the money changers and those who sold pigeons. So these weren't for pets for your house or something like that. These were for The sacrifices. And when you came to the temple, you would bring your sacrifice. Many people would bring their sacrifice from home. Remember, we are in the Passover. All Jewish males had to make their way down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they would typically bring their family with them, and they had to bring a sacrifice on behalf of their family. Now, the sacrifice had to be up to God's standards, and that's biblical. That's required in the Old Testament. Sadly, in the history of the Jewish people, there were times where they sort of, yeah, I know I got a sacrifice, but I don't want my sacrifice to cost me anything. And so they would send their son out, go out and find that ugly you know, animal there, bring the ugly one in, and we'll get rid of that one this particular year. We don't want it anyway. And you could not bring a sacrifice that had blemishes of any sorts. And so its leg had been broken, and it's all weird over here on the side. Hey, you can't bring that one here. Go get me a good one, whatever it may be. We read in the book of Malachi. Now, how many of you have read Malachi in your devotions this week? This week? Liar. I see you. Okay. Very good. Well, here's the good news. Malachi is just one book back. And I want you to flip there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, we are going to look at one of the chapters, chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 6. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. And the reason I bring this up... Is because it speaks of a practice that developed among the the Jewish worshipers in which they would bring subpar sacrifices. So let me read, starting in verse 1, verse 6. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Right? Everybody agrees? Correct. If then, the Lord says, I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. O oh, priest who despised my name. But you say, whoa, whoa, how have we despised your name? The priests say. And the Lord answers, by offering food, polluted food upon my altar. But you say, whoa, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you? Or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10 Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He's saying, Oh, that there were a priest that would stand up for righteousness, and say that this is wrong, and that these blemished sacrifices or sacrifices in vain. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and it's fruit, that it's food may be despised but you say this is what they're saying about worship what a weariness this is got to go to church again we just went to remember I mean, when i was a kid and christmas eve would fall on like a friday and i had to go to church christmas eve and then my mom drags me back again on sunday come on like i was just there what a weariness this is i've changed a little friend since then <laughs> I, I hope What a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? says the Lord? Verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. That means you have a good animal, but you give a not so good one. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so with these practices in their past history and and even before this when it was first introduced that they had to sacrifice there had to be a system put in place where the sacrifice was determined to be an appropriate sacrifice where the priest would inspect the sacrifices and make sure they were up to the standards that were prescribed of God. Now the problem was that soon a system developed in which the fault, so in the earlier case in Malachi, the fault was with the worshipers. But pretty soon a system developed of the inspection of sacrifices where the fault was not with the worshipers, but the fault was with the leaders and the ones that were inspecting the sacrifice. And sadly what developed was a corruption. A corruption that involved the religious leaders and those that were selling pigeons or any other temple sacrifices that would be acceptable. And the scenario went something like this. You and your family would make a long journey from northern Galilee, from the southern Judea. You'd come a long way. We saw Jesus, it took him almost a month to get there. And so a family would come this long way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Prior to leaving your home, you surveyed the animals you had, and you found one that, to the best of your knowledge, would be deemed an acceptable sacrifice. And so you and your little caravan of people, and you'd probably travel with a bunch of people from your little town or village, you would be very careful with your animal. You wouldn't put it on a leash and have it walk. You'd carry it. You'd put it up on a cart. You'd do something to make sure that nothing would happen uh, to this particular animal that you were about to sacrifice. Then you get to the temple, and you make your way to the priest, and you present your sacrifice, and he, as he's designed to do, promptly begins to inspect your sacrifice, Unfortunately, however, after all that time and care with the animal, your sacrifice is deemed unacceptable and it is promptly rejected by the priest. Now you have an option. You can either go back home, spend another 3 weeks, make your way back home, get another one, 3 weeks back here and show up for the Passover feast 6 weeks late, or fortunately, the priest have made available pre-approved sacrificial animals. Big sign right up there. And you know that if you go over and purchase one of them, it's going to fly through. It's a pre-approved sacrificial animal. And so what do you do? Of course, you go to the pre-approved store. Now you go over to the store and you wait in line. And the line is very similar to a DMV line. And so you're there for a couple of weeks or so waiting. It's a lot longer than you hope for, but you finally get to the front of the line and you say, I'd like to buy a pre-approved sacrificial lamb or whatever it may be. And they say to you, well, I'm sorry, you need to use temple money. You can't use, you know, the traditional Roman money that you have in your pocket. So first got to go over there, just like the DMV. First got to go over there to that line. And so you go over there to that line and you cash in your Roman shekels for the temple currency again the only acceptable currency for the purchase of a sacrifice and you realize the exchange rate stinks but you're like what am i going to do and what you discover with the exchange rate is what would have probably cost you about 10 bucks in roman shekels translates to about 100 bucks and you can't help but thinking i'm getting ripped off here you know and this whole system seems to stink but again what are you going to do so you buy the $100 lamb, which should have cost 10 bucks. You go back over, or you change the money. You go over to the pre-approved line. You buy the, the lamb there, and you take the blemished sacrifice. And as you're, you're leaving there with your old sacrifice, which is no good, the guy says to you, hey, by the way, if you want, I can take your old one off your hands. Now you're working with a used car dealer. all right? And he takes your old one off your hands, and, you know, because it's blemished, I can give you... I can give you three bucks for it, you know, whatever. You're like, all right, whatever, just take it. And, he, you get it. and then you can't help but notice, hey, that's my little guy in the pre-approved pile over there. And he threw your little guy into that pile as well. And you know that this whole thing is a scam. You're getting ripped off, and you know it. William Barclay, he pointed this out, that a pair of doves which would cost as little as four pence, or pennies, let's say, outside the temple, could cost as much as 75 pence, inside of the temple well, that's quite a markup don't you think and the priest and the salespeople are in cahoots with one another and the religious leaders are ripping off the people of god and that in and of itself is bad but i think more significantly they're turning people off to the things of god so it's one thing to be ripped off and, you know, all right, I spent more money than I wanted to spend. It happens all the time when you ever go to an airport and buy food or whatever. $20, couple of slice of pizza and a soda for my dad and I the other day at the airport. $20! bucks. i am thinking this is wrong or whatever. And so you've been ripped off before or whatever. But now they're being ripped off by the religious leaders, and they're not really angry with the religious leaders. They're being turned off to God himself because obviously God's involved in this whole scam Here. That's what these people are thinking. You know, the good news is that in our day, we don't have religious leaders that do this sort of thing. That's the good news, isn't it? Has that been your experience? Unfortunately, we see people all the time getting rich off of the ministry, religious leaders, taking advantage of people in the ministry. Send in your money, sow your seed of faith, and I'll pray that God blesses you. These sorts of things. And honestly, as I was kind of thinking through this, I wanted to begin to just think of examples, and I said, I don't even want to think of examples, because there's so many out there, and it's so dirtying. Is that a proper phrase? Like to even think about, you know, it just kind of stains what God is doing in your own heart, and so you can think of it on your own if you want to, uh, but I decided not to, but unfortunately, we still see this sort of thing in our day, where people misrepresent God, and they take advantage of God's people, and ultimately, I think the sad thing is it damages a person's relationship with God because the assumption then becomes, well, then God must be involved with this. And that's a very bad thing, certainly so. Would you want to go to worship or temple to worship in a place like that? Certainly not. Now, we know how God feels about it. I think I've made it clear how I feel about it, but we know how God feels about it. Jesus, notice how he responds. It says, now Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus freaks is what I wrote down here. And rightfully so. I'm glad he did. You know, I wish I was there with him. I would help him. Not the first time that Jesus responded in this way. We see he did this very early on. John chapter 2 I assume the first time he went into the temple during the era of his public ministry, and he begins to overturn tables there as well. So this is the second time minimum in three and a half years or so. Uh, He takes it very seriously. Those who are appointed to represent God who instead misrepresent God. And he deals with it. And as you can imagine, the religious leaders aren't too fond of the Lord. They don't receive this too well. There are a group of people, however, that do receive it well. And this is the fun part of our study. That kind of drives you crazy stuff. This here, look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. It says, and the blind and the lamb came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And so while the religious leaders are mad at him, what are you doing? You have no right or grumbling about what they're going to do to him you know, in a corner somewhere. You have people that are coming to him. The blind are coming to him. The lame are coming to him. And he begins to heal them. Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, Matthew 9, he said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but it is those that are sick. It's those that have an earache or a bellyache or something like that here and there throughout their body that realize there might be a problem. And those are the ones, if they're men, they begin thinking about going to the doctor. If they're ladies, they go to the doctor. Men, we never go to the doctor, uh, but perhaps we should. But those are the ones, they have an ache, they realize there might be something wrong, And they go to the doctor. If all is well and good, why go to the doctor? I know you should go for physicals and stuff like that. But think about it as a man. We don't do that. right? We don't go to doctors. Even so, I think spiritually, it's those that realize that there's a problem spiritually that will look for help. And so just as a person that is feeling fine and has no aches and no pains doesn't seek out the help of a physician, even so the person that thinks they are spiritually fine does not seek out the help of the great physician. And here in our passage we have a prime example of it. That against the backdrop of the blind and the, the lame coming to Jesus, you have another group that is standing opposed to Jesus, which is the chief priest and the scribes. And look at verse 15, it says, When the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? So the people are cheering Jesus on. And while the blind and the lame are being healed, these chief priests are indignant. It says, Imagine if you were blind and healed, the joy you would have from being in Jesus' presence. If you were lamed and touched and you could skip away happily, imagine the joy that would be in your heart. And while this is happening and people are happy for the friends that are being healed, you have a group of people that are grumbling and that are indignant and they're telling Jesus that these things should stop. Again, we read that in verses 15 and 16. Rather than considering if they were wrong, maybe they've missed something, even though they were a leader, that perhaps they had missed something about who Jesus is. Rather than considering that, Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah. Instead, they confront the Lord, and they imply that he should make the people stop. It's as if they say, don't you hear what they're saying about you? Aren't you going to stop such blasphemy? And Jesus doesn't really answer. He says, yeah, I hear what they're saying, and I love it, because they see who I am and what I've came to be. He says to them, have you not written? And then he goes on and he he quotes chapter 8 of the Psalms. He says, Uh, Yes, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. Not the theological geniuses, though theological geniuses can know the Lord, but just because you're a theological genius doesn't mean you know the Lord. Not the highly religious, not the so-called spiritual leaders of the day, but out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, the simple and the believing and as predicted they're the ones that would receive him and acknowledge him as god's anointed one out of the mouths of these simple ones came forth praise hosanna son of david now with that interaction jesus goes to the temple he has this interaction here now he goes home for the night for the rest of the day whatever he returns to the city of bethany In Bethany, he lodged at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. He would stay there at their home every time he was in and around the vicinity of Jerusalem. And so he left them there, he went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. Now it continues in verse 18, and we read, In the morning as he was returning to the city, so every night he'd go home, every morning he'd go back to the temple. It says, As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, certainly an unusual occurrence. I don't know about you, but it's somewhat uncomfortable for me to read because it kind of gives this appearance, appearance that Jesus is a hothead. And Jesus was having one of those Snickers moments, you know, where he was a little hungry, you know, and he was just a little out of character. You're not yourself, Jesus, when you're hungry, or whatever it may be. The reality is that there's something else that is going on here than a Snickers moment for the Lord. And so let's go back, let's look at the verses. Verse 18, it begins by telling us that this event takes place in the morning. Presumably, it's the next morning, which means we are now on the Tuesday of the Passover week. The Last Supper will take place on a Thursday. The the crucifixion will take place on the Friday. So we're moving more and more, or closer and closer to to that day, that time. As we see Jesus is making his way back, from Bethany to the city. The city would be Jerusalem. And that as he is headed there alongside on the path, uh, he becomes hungry. He notices a fig tree there, and he's going to go over to the fig tree and grab something to eat. It's significant that it says, and he became hungry or he was hungry. Because the scripture says that the word became flesh. The word is God in the, uh, became flesh, the incarnation. And so, in the flesh, that means he took on himself all of the limitations of huma- humanity. And so, like you and I, Jesus became hungry. And it's just, I know it's just passing in there, but it's the miracle of the incarnation. And so, since he is hungry, he comes now to this tree. He goes over to it to look for some of its fruit to enjoy, as it says in verse 19. And unfortunately, though there are leaves on the tree, there are no figs on the tree. It's a fruitless tree. It has the appearance of being fruitful, but it's anything but fruitful. You can't eat leaves. What's that plan? Some people are on something thirty or whatever. You can't eat leaves, friends. It's wrong. All you know, right, hamburgers. That's what we eat. I'm just teasing. All righty. Maybe you can eat leaves. A little sauce on there. What a dressing that. Maybe you can. All righty. But anyhow, there's no figs on this. There are leaves. It has the appearance of being fruitful. But it was anything but. Now, this particular type of fig tree was a common one in Israel. There's, there's something like 17 different types of fig trees in Israel. This particular one here is still common in Israel today. And it's a type of tree which would first produce leaves and then figs. Uh, excuse me. Type first produce figs and then the leaves. So if you saw the leaves, you would expect that there were figs. That's the first thing about it. So he's in a distance walking up, sees a tree with leaves on it. If leaves are on it, it's going to have figs on it. So he's excited. I'm going to grab a fig. Second characteristic of this type of fig tree has to do with when it blooms and so on. That's how they know what type of tree it is, is that it would produce a limited amount of figs very early on in the spring and then a full harvest toward the end of summer. Now, those early figs that it would produce, and we are in the early part of the year, we're in the spring, those early figs that it would produce would be an indication of a future harvest that could be expected at the end of summer. And so, if you went to a tree in the spring that had no figs on it, then you know there will be no figs on it come harvest time. Does that make sense? And so Jesus now comes to this particular tree expecting to find fruit. It has leaves. It's early spring. It should have an early kind of offshoot of figs on there. And rather than finding figs, he he finds it's not the case. Look at verse 19. It says, seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found on it nothing but leaves. The tree was guilty of false advertising. It was advertising itself as being fruitful... When I know, amen. When in actuality, it was not fruitful. It was pretending to be alive and a giver of life. That's what food does, it gives life. It was pretending to be alive and a giver of life. When in actuality, with the leaves from a distance, it only had the appearance of life. And so Jesus curses it. He declares, May no fruit ever come from you again. Now, again, even that seems harsh. It seems extreme. It seems as if Jesus is already having a bad day and now he takes it out on the fig tree or something like that. But the reality of what's going on here is Jesus has moved away from his earthly hunger and he has in front of him an opportunity to do a teaching because this tree that has leaves on it but no fig, this tree that gives the appearance of having life but not having life reminds the Lord, so to speak, of something. And so he uses it as an opportunity. Now, if Jesus were to go to the tree and pull off a branch and say, guys, you see what I have in front of here? I have a branch. You notice, what time of year is it, everyone? It's spring, they would yell at. That's correct, classroom or whatever. You notice this tree has leaves on it? What should this tree have also on it? They would say, figs. Okay, somebody answered. Very good. (laughs) And they would call out, it should have figs as well on it. And then if he were to say, even so, the nation of Israel is like this. Everybody there would have understood. We would have all understood. But he doesn't take the branch down, though. But Jesus is going to teach that same message to these people. And rather than teaching with words this point, Jesus instead teaches via an acted-out parable. When he got on that donkey and he rode into Jerusalem last week, I said to you that that was an acted-out parable. Sometimes he said, once there was a man, and other times he showed in a parable. And so we have an acted out parable here again, a lesson conveyed not with words, but with actions for all to see. And so we have a parable here, I think, with multiple applications. The immediate application is related to Jesus' interactions with the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem. Regularly throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree is used as a symbol of the nation of Israel. Much like in American history or in America, the symbol of our nation would be the the bald eagle. Well, the fig tree was a symbol of the nation. And you can see examples of it in the Old Testament prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Amos and some of the others as well, where the, the nation of Israel is likened to a fig tree. And as demonstrated in the previous interaction in the temple, the nation of Israel, which is represented by its religious leaders had an appearance of life and of godliness, but the reality is they were very far from God and the things of God, as represented by the fact that they're ripping off the worshipers of God with the money changers and so on. They had their ornate robes. They had their magnificent temple, which was a a wonder of the world in that day. They had their elaborate rituals, but the reality is they were corrupt and they were full of deception. They appeared to be alive, and they appeared to be givers of life. But the reality is these things were nothing more than an appearance. In an earlier confrontation with Jesus, the religious leaders said to him, essentially these words, we don't need you. You you come here saying you're the Messiah, we don't need you. They said, we have Abraham as our father, and we're doing just fine, thank you. We don't have anything to change, the, the direction of things. And Jesus' instructions at that time were that they should not presume to say to themselves, this is from Matthew chapter 3, he says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now notice these next words. He said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He said that previously. Here in Matthew 21, Jesus is not cursing a fig tree when he curses a fig tree. He's cursing the nation of Israel and all of its hypocritical religious systems and their leaders. He's calling out a people that have an appearance of godliness but no fruit of godliness. And he's making it clear that the axe has been laid to the root of the tree and that a judgment is soon coming. A new covenant is being ushered in. The next night, or two nights later, at the Last Supper, he will introduce the new covenant, where he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. We celebrate it on communion. A new covenant is being ushered in. And if the religious leaders, or anyone else, does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as it's said there in Matthew chapter 3, then judgment would soon come upon them. Now that, I believe, is the immediate application of this particular event that is taking place that's the primary purpose uh, for his acting out this parable but I do think there is a secondary application that each one of us can apply to our own lives and it's an application I believe that just simply begins with this question how are you doing in your walk with Christ how are you doing in your walk with Christ does your walk have an appearance of life When in actuality there is no evidence of life at all, is your life producing fruit as it should? The evidence of God's work in our lives is called fruit in the Bible. There's a variety of different fruit that the scripture indicates will be present in the lives of those that are walking with and clinging to Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews, for instance, says that one fruit that will be evident in the lives of those that God is working in will be the fruit of the lips that praise him. You look at the context of Hebrews chapter 13, that's referring to thanksgiving. And so that a person that is walking with the Lord and clinging to the Lord, there will be a tendency in that person's heart, there will be a characteristic in that person's life, they will be a thankful person. Are you genuinely thankful for what God has done for you and in you and through you? Or do you see that the general pattern of your life is a tendency to gripe and complain about everything? If you are griping and complaining about everything, you have a fruit problem. Because it tells us in Hebrews that Thanksgiving will be a mark of those that are walking with the Lord. James would write about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Paul would also write about the fruit of righteousness. Paul would also write about the fruit of goodness and truth. Are those character traits evident? In your life, righteousness, goodness, truth, are they evident in my life? According to the Bible, they should be. And if they're not, then that's evidence that there is something wrong. In the well-known passage that is referred to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul would write of the fruit of God's Spirit being things like this, love, joy, and peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Saying, against such things there is no law. Is your life marked by love and joy and peace despite the circumstances and patience? Are you kind and gentle? Do you exercise self-control? Well, the Bible says you should be. Now, what does it mean if there's no fruit in your life? So you're sitting here, you're taking inventory, and you say, you know what? I'm not a very peaceful person. I just want to I want to go out and get something. You know, I can kind of tell what's going on in my walk with the Lord by how quickly frustrated I get and how I want to respond. And so we were watching the news the other day, and some guy was running for president, and he was saying some things. And there was just this reach that I just wanted to go out and talk to him, you know, or whatever it may be. And that's an indicator Of where I'm at. I know myself enough now. I've been with myself for 45 years. And so I I can understand. I know what's going on in there. But what does it mean if there's no fruit in your life? What does it mean? The title of our sermon is a fruitless fig tree. What does it mean if you are a fruitless fig tree? It means you have a problem. That's what it means. That there's a problem. Now I'm not saying you're not saved. If you don't have some fruit in your life. But you may not be saved. So I will throw that out there. I don't want everyone to walk out of here and say, well, I'm good. Everything's fine. I can live this way. You might not be saved. That's why there's no fruit in your life. We can talk about that at another time. But maybe you are saved and you're not seeing this fruit in your life, or maybe you're not seeing the fruit you once saw previously. Again, it's an indicator that at the very least you have a problem and that you should take inventory as to what might be causing that problem. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable that also involves a fig tree. Now, I don't think there's any significance to the fact that a fig tree there, a fig tree here. I just think it's about another tree. All right? But he tells another parable there that involves another tree. And what's significant in Luke 13's parable is it is, again, another tree that is not bearing fruit. That's the connection. Let me read this to you. It starts in verse 6 of chapter 13 in the book of Luke. It says, now he told this parable, as, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Oh, boy. And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on it manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. So notice, the evidence of the problem in that parable is that there is no fruit. It says it there in verse 6. The cause of the problem, however, is not up in the branches. It's, however, it's down by the roots. So the man says in verse 8... Let it alone this year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll put on it manure. The problem's not up in in the trees, uh, up in the branches. It's down at the roots. And so the man asks for permission to dig around the tree and put manure in that area. He asks for permission to deal with the roots of the tree. A similar analogy. Jesus liked the farm analogy type stuff. A similar analogy is found in John 15. In John 15, it says, he says, Abide in me, this is just a general teaching. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine or the root, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And there it is. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you have a fruit problem, It's because you have a root problem. And so if after taking inventory of your life, you're not finding yourself to be very loving or to be kind or to be gentle with others. Or you look at your life and you see that you are a person that you're not a person of peace or being marked by peace. Those are indicators that you have a root problem. And there are only two reasons a person can have a root problem, the Bible makes clear. Number one is that you're not saved. And so you're not tapped into the vine of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason you could have a root problem. You've never even begun a relationship with Christ, and thus the power of Christ doesn't even dwell in your life. The second reason, for those that are believers, the second reason that we have a root problem is because we are not abiding in Christ. That is, that we're no longer connected with Christ, that our prayer life has become pretty much non existent, that our time in the Word is minimal at best, that we rarely gather with the saints and share life together with the saints, kind of a small group experience, that we become totally inward, giving very little of ourself or our time or our resources to the kingdom of God and to the others and to others. A tree does not have to work very hard to produce fruit. It simply needs to be connected to a good source of life. It needs to have a good root system. Now, please don't hear me today and leave here concluding, you know what, I needed to hear that. And I'm going to work harder to be a better Christian. Because I'll tell you this, you're going to fail in that endeavor. So if you think what I'm saying to you is, come on, folks, get it together, work a little bit harder, and shoot out some more fruit, then you're missing the point of what I'm trying to say. Because if that's what you leave here with, you will fail in that endeavor. A person that does that is trying in their own strength to produce more fruit. Rather, my hope is that each of us would leave here saying this, you know what, I'm going to be more diligent to stay connected to the vine. And that is the Lord Jesus. You do that, and fruit will come naturally. So spend time with him in prayer every day. Spend time with him in his word. Develop relationships with other believers that are doing the same thing and communicate about what God is doing in your life and what let them communicate with you what God is doing in their life. Give of yourself. You know, I was thinking about this. If everything in life is about us and it sort of just all gets poured in and stays in there, then that water, so to speak, soon becomes stagnant. But if it keeps moving through us into the lives of other people, that's when it is fresh and it is alive. And so if your entire life is about yourself and everything that you can have for yourself and that you're happy and you're pleased and you're enjoying this and that and so on, and you're not in turn giving out to other people, your life's going to become stagnant. You're not going to see fruit, to go back to that other metaphor. Stay connected to Christ. Make that what you're diligent about. Now let me finish up the account, verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. Oh boy. And they said, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Seeing the fig tree immediately wither, the disciples, they marvel. You would too, probably. And they ask, how did this happen? How did the fig tree wither? Now, notice Jesus' response. He moves on from the why of the miracle. The why of the miracle is to show that the religious leaders had the appearance of life, but they, weren't, they did not really have life. That's the why of what he was doing. He now goes, based on their question, from the why to the how. And I think it's significant. Jesus doesn't say, "Well, you think this is hard for me? I'm God in the flesh. I could cause trees to wither anytime I want trees to wither. He doesn't answer that. And what, so, what he's saying is, this didn't happen because I'm God. What he says is, this happened because I uttered a prayer and a prayer in faith. And you can do the same thing as well. Let's look at it. He said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do this, what has been done to the fig tree, but if, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. A prayer that each one of us could present as well by faith and expect the Father to answer as well according to faith. Now, this isn't a promise that Jesus makes to the whole world. It's a promise that he makes to his disciples. And what a promise it is, certainly. How amazing, then, is it, with this promise of the power of prayer, how often Christians neglect the privilege of of prayer. Prayer is a privilege, It's a privilege for us as individuals. It's a privilege for us as small groups of believers. It's a privilege for us as families as we come together and pray. It's a privilege for us as a church. And I'd encourage you, church, do not neglect the privilege of prayer. I speak to myself. Make it a habit of your personal life. Make it a habit of your small group relationships or your your small group of friends, whatever it may be. Make it a habit of our church. Do not neglect the privilege of prayer and believe the scripture that says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. Amen. Would you agree? All right. We'll stop there today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these exhortations. And Lord, I think most importantly, I'm grateful today just for the reminder of the importance of staying connected with you. Lord, I, I did not begin following you because someone kind of said, this is what will happen in the church and you'll get to do this and hang out with these people and go to these places and all these tasks. But I began following you because you revealed yourself to my heart. And I began following you because I wanted to be near you. And Lord, I think we forget that sometimes as Christians. And we get distracted and begin running after other things. And, Lord, we just want to run after you. And, Lord, we are confident that in that race, so to speak, that every other thing will be taken care of. And that the fruit will just begin to be produced in our lives. And, Lord, we delight in that. And so, Lord, uh, draw us to yourselves. Lord, I pray for those of us that have been having dry, quiet times. Lord, that you would bless them. And just sort of open up your word to our hearts. Lord, I pray for those that have uh, gotten out of habit or practice of meeting with you in prayer and the study of your word. Lord, of serving others, of giving of their lives away for, to others. Lord, that you would kind of just sort of put, extend out your hand and welcome us back to yourself. And Lord, we would answer that call and come back to you. And so Lord, fill us with the knowledge of you. Lord, bless us with the joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.